Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Rennie Edo-Lodge, the author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, joins us to discuss the book's impact on the conversation around racial equality and how the events of the past few years have informed a newly updated edition of the book. Originally published in 2017, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by journalist Rennie Edo Lodge has won countless awards and sold over 1 million copies. Now Edo Lodge is back with an updated edition reflecting on recent events. Is anti-racism being hijacked by the culture wars? And how do we make sense of the racial reckoning of 2020 and some of the backlash against it? For this podcast, she was joined by journalist, author and academic Gary Young. It was a wide-ranging and passionate discussion with a particularly interesting Q&A section with the audience. To hear the full Q&A, Apple listeners, just hit subscribe in your app and for $4.99 a month, you'll get to hear the full thing and get all our premium content too. But now, back to the episode. Let's join Gary Young and Rennie Edo-Lodge in conversation. Thank you, thank you, thanks for coming. It's always the case in these moments, isn't it, that we say that my guest needs no introduction and then we go on to introduce them, but you wouldn't be here if you didn't know that Rennie Edo Lodge is an acclaimed author, podcaster, journalist, and uh, most urgently and relevantly tonight, for tonight, author of Why I'm No Longer Speaking to White People About Race. Please welcome Rennie Edo Lodge. So, Rennie, I want to I start, as most good anniversaries do, with the birth. Your book came out five years ago. Did its success, and I'm talking about before the Black Lives Matter protest, it was already going gangbusters before then. Did its success surprise you? And what might you attribute that success to? Well, first off, uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's weird stepping out, I think, in public again after <laughs> post-pandemic. So I want to say thank you all for being here. And thank you to Gary as well. You know, um, I think sort of doing this almost like reflection event with you of all people is really important to me. You know, Gary's writing is some of the, in my opinion, some of the best journalistic writing out there. And Gary is one of the people who whose work I've always looked up to. So um, I just wanted to put that out there. But yeah, we need to give him a round of applause. You know. Um, uh, in answer to your question, um, I feel like I have to take ownership to a kind of a level of naivety in myself um, because, you know, I started writing why I'm, which is my abbreviation for it, because it's like 10 words long. <laughs> um, when I was like 25 years old, like I was, a, I was young. And um, I didn't, to me, the work was the writing. 
the work was the writing, the working with an editor, and post like that day of publication, I had like zero expectations for how it might be received in the world. Um, it just wasn't on my agenda. It like, wasn't on my radar. So I was kind of like a bit knocked sideways in terms of how um, like it gathered momentum so quickly. I think like the broader political conditions for it, you know, they made quite a lot of sense. There was the election of Donald Trump earlier that year, like the inauguration of him, I should say, which I know that there was a lot of progressives around the world really reeling from that. And also there'd been um, Brexit at the prior year as well. And, you know, we know that the, um, the Yes campaign like really utilized quite a bit of xenophobia um, in, in, the, uh, in the campaign for leaving the EU. So I feel like, like the book came out in an environment where a lot of people were reeling from those big like seismic political shifts uh, in Britain and America, but also like not just those two countries, like we were also seeing like the elections of some frankly like authoritarian demagogues like around the world and um, people, and like a lot of those people were utilizing like open racism. I think people were feeling like quite shocked well, some people, there were also other people who I think had, you know, saw that title and re immediately resonated with it, like, um, before, you know, it was even published. I think there was definitely like a section of people who, for whom that, the work functioned like that. Me personally, like, I had no, um, no idea. Like, five years on, like, I feel like people expect me to be a person who's like, politically savvy when it comes to me and my work and the position of it in society. And that's just not the case at all. Like I was, I was very much like shocked and kind of like still am um, that, that it sort of became the book that it became and that it meant so much to people in that way, you know? I mean, if we just sit with the title for a minute because the title is a bit like a tweet when people don't go to the link and they just read the headline. And the title is a, um, throws a gauntlet down, in a sense. What is it about the title that you think spoke to, spoke to people in the way that it did? Well, I think, like, with distance, um, there's, like, a mixture of, like, my inclination to be very earnest. Like, there was... Because when I wrote, not just the title, but the piece of writing that the title came from, which was a blog post, you know, I really meant it. Like, it really came from a place of, like, I'm exhausted by this conversation, I can't do it anymore. So there was that earnestness, but then that was, like, met also, I think, with a kind of, like, you know, the wider world saw it as extremely provocative, you know? Like, l less so as, like, a self-expression and more so as a grenade, mm. you know? And that was also something that like, you know, I was surprised by, I suppose, you know? I was surprised by the ways in which people um, received it. I mean, I think that, again, there were definitely like readers who read that and were like, oh my God, like, I know where she's coming from on that, you know? Um, at, and also, I think for people who absolutely hated the idea that anybody would ever utter that sentence, 
they were drawn in, you know, because there was, it begins with the word why, you know. It suggests an explanation. Um, and that was a really interesting combination, I think, you know. And I think, like, we kind of live in a time now, like, it was the case in 2017, and it's becoming even more so now, where, like, there's a lot of, like, being provocativeness, being provocative for provocativeness's sake. I don't know if provocativeness is a word, I just made it up. Um, and uh, I, th I think people like saw it and they were like, oh, that's what it is, mm. you know? And then, listen, and I'm speaking about myself here, so you can disagree, but like, there was a really earnest bit of writing like behind that title that was like, here's why, like, I really mean this. I'm not just doing this to be a troll, do you know what mm. I mean? Like, and yeah, I mean, I don't know, I feel like if I was not me, I'd be trying to dissect it in an English class. Like, <laughs> what is it about this sentence that like sets people off in both a positive and a negative way, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was a provocation that delivered, I think. Most provocations don't have much of a life beyond the, the poke. Um, uh, whereas, you know, you, you you laid out your your stall, but it wasn't just the way it was received, it was also the way it was used. Uh, and here I'm thinking of the story you tell in the new edition of one of the uh, young women who's involved in pulling down the Colston statue, who said she was, she told the jury that she was inspired in part by your book, or in very large part by your book. That could make you feel like you have an awful lot of responsibility. I'm just wondering how it makes you feel. You could just feel like very proud, or um, a bit scared, or like um, every now and then, you know, I write things and then I say, oh God, somebody actually read that. And, um, um, and it, you do these things and you have no idea where they go, which is what you were saying in the beginning. You have no expectations. But here it is actually being instrumentalized in struggle. Mm. How does that make you feel? And, um, and maybe there's no answer to this, but why do you think that is? I remember when I first read the news report, um, it was actually only The Guardian who picked up from the um, Colston Four trial that Rianne, um, who was one of the people who pulled down that slave trader statue, named the book in court. Um, I remember reading that and I was um, kind of scared, <laughs> you know, like at the, at the power of it. Like, so I remember many years ago, I was in Canada, like speaking at um, a conference and I met an, much, an old, a writer who was much older and like far more, like very well respected, somebody whose work I had like grew up on, right? And um, we were both like speaking at the same thing and um, I was explaining to her the uh, um, plot of the film Death Note. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Um, it's a film where basically like the main character like gets hold of a, a notebook and in this notebook like if you write a person's name in it, like they die. <laughs> like they just die. Um, that's a very truncated like version of the plot. But anyway, so I was explaining to her. <laughs> I was explaining to her like 
um, about Death Note, the film, and she turned to me and she gave me like this half smile and she was like, the power of words. And like that really sticks in my head because that came up for me when I read about Rianne reading the book and then feeling compelled to bring down that statue. I was like, the power of words, like, there's a reason why books have been burned through, throughout history, like, you know, effectively communicated ideas are like, they're incredibly powerful. And, you know, I'm not saying that I can take, as the author of this book, like, 100% credit for, like, the, the work that Rianne did that day, but, like, you know, I know that I've read work in the past, like, really, like, arresting political writing that has absolutely, like, transformed me. And to know that I am now the author of a piece of work for whom that's doing that to other, other people, like, that's never going to stop blowing me away, I think, you know? And I also, I think that's kind of, like, why this book in, is also, like, perceived as, like, dangerous as well, you know? Um, regardless of like how many copies it's, it's sold, regardless of the fact that you can pick it up in Sainsbury's and at the airport, you know, when you're on your way to, you know, the Marbella or whatever, like, and you can read it, you can pick it up next to the beach reads, like there's a, a dangerousness about it because like it, it seriously threatens the status quo, you know? Um, and I feel like I just, like, I think I'm pretty good at, like, analyzing the wider world around me, but when it comes to my own work, like, I never really did that, and so it still kind of blows my mind, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I was going to come on to this later, but let's, let's, let's do it now, because it was, on the one hand, it inspired people like Rianne to do, but on the other hand, it did enrage some people, um, one of whom, uh, um, was a junior minister in the government who mentioned your name. Rianne mentioned it to a jury. She mentioned it in the dispatch box and says that you're in favor of segregation. And um, this is um, Kemi Badenoch. So first of all, I want to know how that felt. But then secondly, what you think that meant it, it comes to something, I think, when politicians start calling out books as being dangerous. And it's a peculiar thing, particularly peculiar, when they don't like a book because it's popular. Now, books can be dangerous. So, you know, there would have been a time, I think if someone had called out Mein Kampf and said this is a dangerous book, then, um, you know, fair enough. But the way that it was done was quite odd and arguably quite dangerous given the situation that we're in and the challenges that particularly black women, both online and in the world in general, have in terms of trolls and violence and violent words. I'm just wondering how it, how it felt to find yourself in the middle of a political with a small and big piece storm. Yeah, sure. So this sort of came up after June 2020. Um, in that autumn of that year, you know, 
the, the gen, then junior equalities minister, Kemi Badrock, she gave an interview to The Spectator, right-wing political magazine, um, and was asked about my book, as well as some American authors. And, you know, the answer was that I, I'm a segregationist. Or, well, paraphrasing. Basically, the answer was these authors are in favor of segregation. Um, and, I mean, I don't read The Spectator, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, but I was, I was alerted to it, and I was like, okay, let me go and find a copy of this, <laughs> you know. Ended up having to go into, like, King's Cross, because they don't sell it in East London. <laughs> I mean, don't applaud me, applaud the news agents and post offices, because I looked. Um, uh, to be honest with you, like, I think, like, to be mentioned in that way, alongside, like, American authors, by a, um, a, a minister is like, it's kind of fascinating because, you know, as a British citizen as well, to have my work, I guess, like, considered a threat on that level. I mean, the fact that the spectator would dedicate um, a lot of space and, like, mention me in my work in that space, like, again, speaks to almost the ubiquity of it, you know, the, the far-reaching um, influence that it has, right? Um, and I kind of always knew, uh, by that point I knew, because it was getting post, like, June 2020, like, I'd be just going around doing my own, doing my daily errands in the same areas I've always frequented and suddenly people recognizing me so I was like okay something's changed <laughs> you know like I'm not quite sure what's changed but some some I mean well, obviously I knew what changed I, I'd seen the broader political environment um, but I didn't realize like it was resonating with people on that level right so I, I'm getting recognized in the same place as I've been to so I was like okay and but I think that mention like in the spectator who would never mention me and my work in a million years if it hadn't become so successful was again um you know a confirmation of not just my ideas but like people really thinking deeply and challenging like what structural oppression looks like is becoming a threat, you know, like, is seriously being considered a threat to this point. And if it wasn't a threat, then there wouldn't really be any, like, effort to denounce it, right? Mm. Um, and for some, like, for years and years before the book came out, I was always, like, doing my writing, and, like, a small group of people were reading, but, like, it wasn't really getting very far. So it took me a while mentally to, like accept and adjust that like when loads of people are reading this work now like way more people than ever before you know and those um th that kind of moment like you know it interrupts my daily life and it reminds me that yeah this work has gone far further than i ever imagined you know um i still think it's like really weird and mind-blowing that um, you know, as we're seeing the ascent of this junior minister who's just run for Tory leadership, you know, who is now essentially pitching her stall on anti-woke, I'm like, this is kind of such a testament to the success of the movement. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it really is that 
that this momentum is going on in the Conservative Party really speaks to the fact that like, an incredible amount of people's hearts and minds are like, truly, like, at this point, committed to not just like, anti-racism, but like, anti-oppression work in general, right? Like, a concerted effort from the Conservatives shows me that, wow, this is really being considered a threat now, you know? But then the fact that she came forth and, um, um, and I would argue the fact that more than half of the candidates who originally stood were non-white um, suggested to some people a kind of, not just a complicating factor, but actually that there was, there's an audience, a big audience for your book, but there's also an audience, significant audience in a powerful place against your book. Um, and I'm wondering how we understand that. If she had stood and got knocked out in the first round, it would be one thing. But for a moment, a significant number of people with power thought she should be the next prime minister. And of all the people who've done well out of this moment so far, she's the one that's done best. I think it's very likely she will get a decent portfolio with whoever runs the show. Um, so where does, that, where does that leave you when you're, uh, the woman with your name in her mouth mm. is going to have some resources? She might even be Minister of Defence. She might have an army. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think what we've seen from Conservatives in the last decade is passionate defences of free speech. So uh, it would be really interesting if um, this politician in you know, receipt of significant power seeks to curb that. Um, I don't but, think they mean free speech for everybody. Oh, uh, well, that's what they claim. Um, but no, you're right. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. You know, you know I th I'm, I'm here, I'm living in Britain, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, um, situations like, you know, what happened in Turkey with, with Erdogan, you know, I'm, I know Turkish journalists who've lost their jobs because Erdogan doesn't like critics, you know? Um, <laughs> You think to yourself, oh, that couldn't happen here. But now I'm starting to think, you just don't know. Mm. You simply don't know. I mean, I, rem I still remember when, um, what's uh, that Hungarian uh, leader? Orban. Yeah, Orban, when um, a Hungarian journalist who I knew said, our paper's been shut down, you know? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, guys, watch this space. <laughs> Seriously, because we do not know what's coming up. Um, and I, you know, will continue to write and uh, we'll, see what's we'll see what's gonna come from it, do you know what I mean? Um, I think you're right about like, that significant like, groundswell of support for her in the Conservative Party, because let's remember that like, um, so far the leadership ele election is like, the decision of like, less than 300, Less than 300 people, right? Yeah. Not, not, many, not many people. It's, the decision is with the pensioners, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what I thought that was like so fascinating, like watching that was that, you know, what Ke Kemi Badenoch 
like serves, I think, for a lot of ire in the Conservative Parliamentary Party that was frankly not verbalised, you know? Like, we saw those protests, we saw that statue coming down, and I think that there was fury that was frankly not verbalised, right? Um, and then here comes a black woman who, I'm gonna say politically, pretty far right, you know, who's saying those things, right? And I think that like, you know, what she has to say, like, functions almost like as a pressure valve for them. And that's why um, she managed to garner so much support. Um, and I think that's like fascinating that that ire wasn't verbalized. You know, when we saw like a week ago that Michael Gove endorsed her, I thought that's really interesting because to my knowledge, he's never said anything publicly about his thoughts on anti-racism or racism or anything. It's been quite vocal on um, Muslims. Right. Um, but I, I'm interested here that if we, um, and sorry for the chopping and changing chronologically, but your book gets a significant boost, uh, almost a relaunch all to itself with uh, the killing of George Floyd, mm. the murder of George Floyd, uh, and this, this new moment, um, which in some ways is very reminiscent of the old moments, but with a new response. And you've spoken about the degree to, that the fact that someone like her could emerge was a testament to how much the movement achieved, in mm. a sense. And I just want to sit with that for a minute and ask, what, what do you think was achieved? Or what has been achieved so far? I mean, we're still going, history's still going. But um, uh, how would you describe how would you describe those achievements? Mm. I mean, I have a half-formed thought in the response they're, to this, the your last ones. question. Uh, I'm going to share it, right? And this is going to sound a bit strange, right? But I also think that her rise, you know, not just speaks to the success of the movement in an obvious way, but also in a more um, covert way in the fact that, like, uh, let's say... Um, the establishment figures in the party didn't say explicitly, uh, but supported her, kind of tells you that they knew that it wouldn't look good if they said it. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. It's almost like some messages of anti-racism have, have reached them, <laughs> you know, and have truly bedded in, you know, because Michael Gove, I mean, I don't know, this is just my speculation, knows that it wouldn't look good if he said the things that she was saying and that it would be perceived at least broadly um, more politically difficult if she's saying it because, oh, it's a black woman saying it, when, frankly, this is not about the colour of your skin, this is about an analysis of power, whatever. Mm. But I think that speaks to um, a success of the movement insofar as, like, representation politics, which we know by themselves are uh, changed very little, right? Mm. But that's stark, weirdly enough. And I think that, like, that, the fact that, like, the next prime minister is not going to be a white man also means that that like, representation politics strand has also stuck. And that's like totally fascinating to me. I mean, well, I've always known that like, the politics of representation alone like, is not going to change. It's not going to you know, 
fundamentally restructure the world, end poverty, end homelessness, you know. Um, but, like, that's fascinating to me. And I guess it speaks to the fact that, like, it's basically the least threatening of the stall that us as anti-racists and as progressives are pitching. Um, but it is successful, right? Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Well, I, not as devil's advocate, but as a child, because I don't, I don't do that. I think it's childish. But as a kind of, as a challenge to that, one could say that... Black Lives Matter and those protests did change a lot of people's minds, and there are there's polling that illustrates that. Um, and in many ways, it, it changed the conversation. Um, but that even as it did that, the power still was concentrated in the same hands, and actually, in a range of ways, we were going backwards, even as we felt better about ourselves that Rwanda, mm. the policy of sending people to Rwanda, which would have been unthinkable, I think, even five years ago, was introduced in this, uh, um, in this moment, the kind of um, a return <clears throat> to stop and search in a range of areas, the um, discussion about cops in schools, child yeah. queue, which happened just down the road from here, um, and so the, the, there is a risk of us feeling better as things get worse, right? Maybe? Yeah, I think you're, you're right there. And as you say that, I think about the fact that, like, you know, if, on the topic of political parties, you know, the opposition, there's just been this report out, the Ford report, which tells you that, which reveals to us that during this same time period, um, not 2020, but, you know, during this time period that this book was out here, gaining a momentum, like, the Labour Party were entrenched in, like, factionalism and using racism and anti-Semitism as a political tool. So it's like, it doesn't give you 
I mean, it doesn't give me much hope, really, in party mm. politics at all, you know. Um, and as an author, I feel a bit like, wow, you know, it's a mess, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's truly a mess. Like, the messages of this broad-based movement, like, doesn't seem to have taken root mm. anywhere <laughs> in in any arena where anybody could change policy at all. And even the, the opposition that claim to be progressive and not, don't seem to be <laughs> holding anybody to account. So it's, it's pretty grim. Because in the, in the moment where uh, Black Lives Matter erupted this, this time, um, Labour were mostly in flight. Mm -hmm. um, um, there were symbolic moments, um, but it never went beyond there. And so we have this paradox of the backlash in Parliament, but the lash, there is no lash in Parliament. There is no, there are good parliamentarians, of course there are. Um, um, but you, one doesn't see an effective response where power in, in that place where power lies, because power lies in lots of places, including in the streets. Um, and it seems that that's the one place where a lot of the, the ideas in your book didn't manage to percolate, percolate, or they did and they're being actively um, resisted. I mean, how do you understand your book comes out with Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party in a moment of, uh, not victory, but ascendancy, certainly, for the left in Labour, the, the, um, the elections in June 2017. We're in a very different time now, and I'm wondering how you understand the constituency for your work among the political class at the moment. I think you're so right there, you know. Um, at no point, um, and I don't expect it because who am I? I'm not like a, I'm not a politician or anything, but I think it's really fascinating that at no point have I ever been approached by any senior Labour leadership during this time of me as, a, um, as an author, you know, going around, talking about this book, talking about structural racism. I think that's fascinating and, you know, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Because again, like looking at the Tory leadership election, like I thought it was fascinating how basically like um, woke was being seen as the opposition because the opposition ain't doing anything. Like the literal, the actual Labour Party, like official policy line on social justice issues is really not much at all. Mm. And I was like, that is amazing. It's just, there's a backlash against I mean, yeah, you can pinpoint me and you can pinpoint some other authors, uh, maybe, but largely, you know, we're talking about books and people's hearts and minds being changed. Um, and we're not talking about any policy proposals or particular, um, you know, challenges from Her Majesty's opposition. And that's why I say it's very disheartening, you know, because <laughs> I'm a bit like, yeah, like, listen, I'm not involved in party politics in any way, but my speculation is in the pursuit of 
become ineluctable, like the Labour Party are just saying very little about it, much at all. <laughs> um, you know, like, if you, if you don't say much, then like, it can't be held against you, you know? That's my speculation, and maybe somebody in the audience is involved in them, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on that, you know? This is just me as an observer. But I do think it's absolutely fascinating. So yeah, I think that you're correct that, you know, there's such an interesting juxtaposition that, you know, this book sold a million copies, and no one's trying to make political capital of the ideas. Like, <laughs> like that's fascinating to me. Um, well, I mean, no the protest showed us, like, mm. thousands of people on the streets, people deeply, passionately, you know, care about this topic. And I wonder if there, maybe if we just shift the gaze of what is political for a moment, that nobody in the political class has. But I think that my, my experience, and this is anecdotal, of the achievement of Black Lives Matter was that it kind of pollinated and it landed in people's communities and in their workplaces and their charitable boards and there was a sense of like, oh, we can't go on like this. And, yeah. uh, uh, and it went from maybe an understanding that this didn't look good to an understanding that they had to, you had some responsibility in changing it. And so, the political resistance is kind of diffuse and almost unknowable. But I think if we look to the response, the Sewell report, which for those of you who don't know, the government commissioned a report by a buffoon and they got a buffoon's report um, um, that claimed that institutional racism wasn't really a problem, structural racism didn't exist. and up a, a range of diversionary kind of um, um, elements that had almost everybody whose work was quoted in it demanding that their work be removed from it because it had been misquoted and misrepresented. So that was an attempt to respond to, to the work that you'd done and others had done, and it failed. It landed in this place where people were just like, so hang on, the, f the football team are taking the knee. That's landing in everybody's living room. And you're telling us that this isn't a problem. We like, it seems like it might be a problem. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering how you, how you read the response that there was, the official response that there was, stuff like the civil report. I mean, I write in the new chapter like it was their own book. <laughs> <laughs> It was the British government's own counter-narrative to the widely accepted narrative of the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, which is that there is institutional racism, we need to root it out. Mm. You know, that was their own response, and I read it closely, and I can basically conclude that their response is, there's a few bad apples, there's no, you know, yeah, there's disparities in all of these places, education, employment, housing, but they can be explained for all of these reasons that aren't racism, you know? And, you know, parts of it were kind of incoherent, really, um, when it came to trying to make that case. Um, and I've now come to the conclusion that, uh, 
since after failing to um, change the minds of people, uh, the Conservative Party are just going to, um, you know, implement top-down backlash um, with with positional power in government, you know, because they can't change people's minds on the ground. I think that's what's going to happen. But that can be very effective. I mean, you know, the Republican Party in America have only won a majority once since 1988, and they've just returned. They've just overturned Roe v. Wade. Mm. I mean, they can, they can do that, right? I think you're right. I think this sounds kind of like a bit morbid, but like, yeah, just. I th I expect restrictions on my work, <laughs> like. <laughs> in the next year. <laughs> like, if certain people become ministers, I expect it, <laughs> like. So then, given that one of the things that came out of that moment was um, this shift in people's reading habits, and um, so there was your book, there was Akala, Natives. Mm -hmm. um, and if we look broad, more broadly and beyond 2020, if we look at someone like Stormzy, or low-key, it feels like in the absence of a parliamentary response, there is a robust cultural response, even if it's not united or combined. What, as a cultural practitioner, as a writer, somebody whose work is at the center of that response, how do you see your responsibilities there? Because you could say, well, you, look, you're the ball game. They're, they're not doing it in Parliament. Um, people are not looking for a lead, suggests people are kind of uh, more um, suggestible. But certainly um, are eager for a kind of framing and an understanding that you've provided. So what now? I, I mean, how do we stop that? You just painted a very with my help, painted a very bleak scenario of what could happen. So what now? I, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting question because, you know, for a while in my life I was involved in student politics and well, at that time people were like, oh, well, you should really go off and try and be a politician and whatnot. And I was like, no, I really like writing, like I'm gonna do my thing and, you know, as I've done my thing, like I find myself, you know, questioning that decision. But the reason why I knew I couldn't go off and be a politician is because I'm just too sensitive for it. Like I can't, all this double crossing and stabbing in the back, I can't do it. See, that's quite funny <laughs> that you're too sensitive to be a politician, but not to write a book that says why I'm not talking to white people about race. Yeah, I do it on my own terms, right? <laughs> I do it on my own terms, like as an author, right? Um, and I think like, you know, I've had to do a lot of analyzing of myself during this time period. And I, I, like I said at the top of our conversation, like, I'm just like a very, like, earnest person. So, I, and there's that level of earnestness and like not expect, and expecting to be um, received um, in good faith, like that I have. I know it's a problem. Like some people might consider it a strength. I now understand it, frankly, as a weakness. You know, um, but that—that that is something that—that's that, like a personality trait that can't go into politics, right? <laughs> <laughs> like it just can't. Um, but in that, I mean, I'm now old enough to understand that, like, okay, 
I can't expect that anymore, but it's always going to be an inclination of mine. Um, my, I'm going to keep observing this moment. I'm going to keep writing about it. Like I said, I expect restrictions of my work. I expect, not unlike something like the hostile environment, um, which you know really ramped up under Theresa May's government, I expect that on work like mine in the next few years. If we don't have a general election next year, come on. Like, <laughs> we need a general election in, in general because it's getting too much now, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, if we don't get that general election, I do expect it, and I don't expect any opposition. I don't expect the opposition party to stand up for me or any other, you know, black anti-racist writers, you know, um, right to freedom of expression. I don't. I hope English Pen will p stick their head over the parapet, like, and I just have to keep writing about it, like. But do, do you? And the answer would. Be could legitimately be no, not yet, but do you have a plan to stand up for yourself? Or a notion of how, if you're actively expecting this, mm -hmm. then how are you actively preparing for it? I mean, are you asking me about like stepping out into the political sphere more explicitly? N no, no, I, um, I'm asking it without any, suggestion for what the answer would be, but mm. if if I see a truck coming, I'm going to get out of the way. Um, I'm, so I'm, I'm wondering if you, if you, you say with some certainty mm -hmm. that you see these threats afoot, I'm just wondering how you plan to deal with them, or if you have a plan. You might not have a plan. Mm. It's, a, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, like, like I said, I spoke with certainty. I also don't want to move with hypervigilance. So I have, I have to wait and see, basically, right? I just have to wait and see. I'm going to just watch that truck coming closer to me and every other writer who writes in this, in this sphere. Um, because I know it sounds weird, right? But like... I kind of feel like my job as a writer is to, you know, keep watching, keep observing, you know. Um, what draws me to it is like a deep sense of, you know, being pulled towards it, right? But there also has to be like this kind of level of, of detachment and I kind of just have to observe it. I mean, I don't know what else to say, Gary. I mean... That's, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Like, that, that's, that's fine. I, mean, I, I don't want to preempt the attack, although I do know it's coming. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make any preemptive moves. Mm. You know? There's a possibility I could be doom and gloom. I doubt it. But there's a possibility that my reading is completely doom and gloomy. <laughs> um, here's an example of your outlook not being in doom and gloomy and I'm, and I'm interested in why it isn't here. This is from the, um, uh, the new book. You say, I used to believe that making the case for a just society would be met with enthusiasm, not mm -hmm. vitriol. That's the issue. That's the earnestness again. Um, That's a naivety. <laughs> Uh, but anywhere the cause of anti-racism is convinced enough of the general populace a cruel defense of the status quo 
has quickly followed. What exactly needs to be preserved evades me. Does, does it, though? Um, yeah, I guess I don't value those things in the same way that people who do value them um, seek to preserve them, you know? I'm always, I'm of the opinion that, like, more information is good. Like, I don't know why you're trying to suppress it. See, because I always assume that if I challenge power, power will come for me. But you, you, you don't, that's not your assumption. Um, well, I think it goes back to not having any expectations initially, not expecting to be noticed. A sense, again, of that kind of earnestness, you know, that genuine kind of like James Baldwin school of thought of, oh, things are bad, but you know, people just need to know that things are bad. <laughs> and like I say, with time, I'm like, oh wait, no, some people like things being bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? Um, and I mean, it sounds weird, it sounds naive, but also I kind of feel like that's what makes my writing mine. Do you know what I mean? The fact that like, I don't come to it with this sense of, you know, there's of course expecting um, challenges, but like I don't come to it expecting um, attacks, you know? I feel like those two things are different. And do you still think that after five years? Um, I can understand you thinking that five years ago, mm. but given what some of the responses have been, do you still feel the same way? Hmm, I think, yeah, now I'm, I expect attacks. I don't really ever know how to prepare for attacks. Do you know what I mean? Like, I also like feel quite passionately that like, you know, you go out and express your opinion, you do your reporting, you do your work. Like, some people are gonna have a problem with it. Like, I've always like anticipated that, you know, um, and, I think that this is kind of like a bit of an issue of almost like growing up in this kind of like, oh, multiculturalism, post-racial world, you know, like the, the same sort of like atmosphere that I was trying to pierce when I wrote the book is that, you know, it does lull one into a false sense of security of, oh, everybody can have their opinion and it's all just a debate, you know? So, no, I didn't expect when I like first published the book that like, there would be a concerted political effort to, challenge isn't the right word, to defeat, you know, this kind of work. Like, mm. because I, I was like thinking, oh, you know, we're in Britain and everybody's just, you know, everyone's got a right to say what they want to say. I mean, I was wrong, you know, like, <laughs> I, I now understand um, that me five years ago was definitely wrong on that front, that like, even with some institutional like backing, like, you know, if work becomes, if this kind of work becomes seriously influential, it will be read as a threat, you know? Um, so that's been a learning journey, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I honestly don't see it as really being wrong or right, but the, the moment moves and mm. shifts and, and, and at a certain point, and, and this, for the last few minutes, I just want to dwell on that point in, in, 2020, when your book takes off again, um, at a certain point, these things become acute. 
and and in that moment, then suddenly, you know, uh, you 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 might become a threat, or your ideas might become a threat. And um, I think it was telling that well that George Floyd was killed in the middle of a pandemic, and that the pandemic was actually illustrating what structural racism looked like, uh, the banality of it in terms of where you live and where you work and so on, uh, as opposed to the, the horrific drama of his death. And um, I'm just wondering, because we were all at home mostly, how you experienced that particular, um, that particular moment around end of May and June, when you have this global thing happening, and you also have this personal stroke professional thing happening, and they're connected. I mean, two global things, right? The pandemic, yes. and then, you know, George Floyd's murder essentially being beamed into all of our homes and living rooms, right? Like, and I, I don't know about anyone else, but I was, mentally struggling with just adjusting to the fact that everybody had to stay inside. Like, it was essentially, it was so mentally stressful. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, adjusting, you know, from the beginning of 2020 to like, I don't know, April, May, like adjusting to the ways in which our world like shrank around us. Like, I don't think any of us have ever lived through anything like that before, right? So. That, I feel like, put me on high alert. Like, it was extremely anxiety-inducing. I feel like it was, was for a lot of people, right? And I feel like, um, you know, do you remember that? During those early days of the pandemic, when we were all tuned in, like, every day, we'd, everybody would watch the same BBC News broadcasts to the point where, like, you know, people were making TikToks out of the BBC News theme tune. Do you know what I mean? Like. It was like appointment TV, right? And so that like high stress, high alert state that I feel like so many of us were in, you know, for then that horrifying video to pierce through that, you know, it's no wonder that it affected people so deeply, you know? To me, it was like mentally devastating. Like I personally couldn't watch it, you know? Um, but screenshots and stuff, and this is what I mean about like, I'm too sensitive for my own good. Like it was, the whole situation was like, frankly horrifying. And then that, and I've sort of like spoken about this in public before, um, that to also then be flip-sided with, I'm seeing mentions of my work happening more and more. And because we're all shut inside our homes, so it was happening mostly on social media. I could see that people were trying to understand like how did this happen and people recommending it. And I'm just like, this is, I knew that that moment was gonna transform my life and I kind of didn't want it to, you know, mm -hmm. because the circumstances that it happened were absolutely horrifying, you know? So at the time, you know, you've alluded to this in some of your questioning, I felt like this huge sense of like responsibility and duty, like I could see eyes, even though I was inside my flat, like seeing very few people, like I could feel the eyes of, the, of like my communities around me, like pointing in my direction, even though I couldn't see anybody, right? And so, I had this sense of responsibility. I could see the book being mentioned everywhere. So I was like, okay, 
I'm going to divert some of this attention that I'm getting, you know, to the organisations who are supporting protesters on the ground. Um, and the Minnesota Freedom Fund, you know, who were basically bailing out protesters during, in, the, in that specific area in Minneapolis where the protests were happening. I was like, guys, I just, I was like, I'm going to do this post and share on my social media that I'm making this donation and I think you should too, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, I've written this book. It analyzes structural racism. It might give you some understanding and some tools about to, uh, what it means to understand this moment, but I'm still, I'm extremely distant from this, mm. you know? I'm in East London. I'm extremely distant from this, from this situation, these protests, you know, um, George Floyd, his family, you know, and I felt this like feeling that I don't want to be personally enriched by this moment um, and this man's family's devastated and he's murdered on camera. I don't know how else to describe it, you know? So I was like, I've got to use this moment to divert some of these eyeballs at me in that direction, you know? And, oh, thank you for the applause. <laughs> it's, it's the earnestness again, like, I, you know, we saw a lot of fundraising and GoFundMes and this and that at that moment. And I think that, obviously it was a moment where a lot of people were like, suddenly alerted to the depth of what racism really looked like, you know, you, like you said, in that grotesque spectacle. But also we were seeing that reporting around like, the type, you know, the fact that, you know, it's black and Asian people largely being hit by COVID and stuff, do you know what I mean? And people wanted to do something, people wanted to divert funds. And like, I totally understand that. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, like, I'm a black, middle-class person living in London. Like, I'm not at this moment in time. I mean, yes, my speech may be infringed at some point in the near future, but, like, um, I'm not at the sharp end at that moment in time. Like, I wasn't, you know? Um, and I think the, the journalist Simeon Brown, like, wrote a really great chapter about that time um, in his book... Um, get rich or lie trying about social media and influencers. Like, I was troubled that, like, suddenly there was this moment where everyone was like, okay, I'm black, like, uh, and, like, so are you doing the work? Like, where, where's this money going? Do you know what I mean? So I just, like, I knew, eyes are looking at me. I know where this money's going. I know where, who this money's going to support. Like, let's direct it there, you know? Um, and I think... You know, there's that phrase, oh, all skin folk aren't kin folk, right? Like, I think that there, that was a time where there was an incredible amount of goodwill, there was an incredible amount of energy, there was an incredible amount of money that, you know, wanted to be directed at anti-racism, and of course, you, you're going to get some charlatans. Do you know what I mean? So, that, all of that mixed in, I was like, I had to make a very quick decision about like, what to do at that moment in time, you know? Um, yeah, that's a very long answer to your question. Um, but, that's good yeah. answer. It's a very good answer. So, uh, Remy, I want to thank you, uh, first of all, for writing the book, but also for a, uh, a, a candor, and, and, uh, uh, and this word can be traduced, but an authenticity, not just in your writing, but in your presence, that uh, people have asked questions and you've answered them. Uh, I've asked you questions and you've, you've answered them to the best of your ability and when you can't answer them, you say I can't answer them. That you have um, 
um, set us up in the best possible way. And it's, it's a real tribute to you that um, however disengaged you think you are from the product of your work, you write your book and then it goes out there, that it was instrumental in uh, Rina, Rianne, pulling down the, uh, the statue, that it has transformed not just people's thinking, but then transformed their action. And that you've managed to um, accomplish that and go through these last five years where you have at times been a lightning rod with a sense of humor and a sense of style and a, um, uh, and a, a, a level of self-deprecation that at certain moments I think don't be so, so, so self-deprecating. But for all of those reasons and so many more, I want to thank you and I want to thank you. The and thank you, Gary. Thanks, everyone. Uh, I want to say thanks for spend, choosing to spend your evening here, everyone. I know it's been really warm and, um, yeah, you could be in the park right now, so I really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. If you're an Apple listener and you want to hear more, including our extended audience Q&A with Rennie and Gary, hit subscribe to our Apple premium content and you can also get ad-free listening and more bonus episodes too. It helps us to keep doing what we're doing and it's super easy. Just hit the button under our logo on Apple Podcasts and you're in. Thanks for listening.